Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is brought to you by Before, an incredible new self-care brand that just launched their first products, a line of purifying toothpastes. I'm obsessive about my teeth and brush them usually three times a day, so I'm super excited to be using Before. It ticks off many boxes of what a good toothpaste should be. Their custom supermint flavor actually tastes really good, and the consistency is silky, and at the same time, it doesn't leak out of the tube, which is a total pet peeve of mine. It's also non-abrasive, so it doesn't destroy your tooth enamel. All the harmful ingredients have been replaced by clean alternatives, and their custom blend of fluoride and dentist-approved ingredients totally promotes optimal mouth health. Before also deeply cares about our planet. Their tubes are made from 100% recyclable plant-based sugarcane and creates 50% less carbon footprint than traditional toothpaste tubes. As you all can tell from the show, I'm a huge fan of good, purposeful design, and let me tell you, the design and color palette of these are beautiful. The tube stands upright on your counter and makes your bathroom look minimal and chic. Visit their website, before.com, and enter the code CRAFT10, C-R-A-F-T-1-0, to receive 10% off your entire purchase. One-time use per customer. I'm a huge fan of what they stand for. You won't be sorry, and your teeth and the planet will thank you. As a number of you know, I'm also a certified sound therapy practitioner and founder of Oto Healing, a sound therapy studio and practice. Sound has been a healing modality through many cultures for thousands of years. Oto's approach to sound is rooted in both art and science, the art being the history of sound, the science being quantum physics, biology, brainwave states, and more. All listeners of the show get 15% off their first private one-hour session. Visit otohealing.com to book yours now. Powerhouse is one way to describe Andrea Mestrovic, who has had a long and accomplished career across various disciplines, Sales and marketing, brand, public relations, consumer packaged goods, and journalism. She's held top positions at companies and brands like Shared Vision Magazine, International Sellers, The Kanki Group, Oak Bay Marine Group, Olivia Palermo, Kitten Ace, and the Mark Anthony Group, before striking out on her own with business partners to launch a very polite agency. To date, the agency has worked on Hootsuite's rebrand and with clients like Amazon Canada, Macage, La Mer, Bosa Properties, Fairmont Pacific Rim, Canada Goose, and more. They recently launched two of their own brands, a carbonated sake drink called Billion Trillion and Matter Cosmetics. For many years, she has also worked closely with Lululemon founder Chip Wilson, running his personal public relations. Andrea was born in Dubrovnik, Croatia, and also spent time living in Bosnia, Serbia, and Macedonia. Her father had been a soccer coach and a well-known one back then. She spent much of her childhood in Sarajevo, but because of the Bosnian War, became a child of war, and fled with her family to Canada, first to Regina, then finally to Vancouver. The idea of becoming a dentist was one drilled into her, but she found herself drawn to liberal arts too. She ended up with a degree in both biochemistry and communications. After university, she landed her first professional job at a conscious consumer magazine group, 
kickstarting an admirable career in multiple industries. In this conversation, we explore being a child of war and how it shaped her perspective and her approach to opportunities, her experience integrating into life in Canada as a preteen, why sales is the basis of good marketing, her first crack at starting a PR agency in her mid-twenties, what she learned about successful negotiation while at the Kanki Group, what her agency partners have brought to her life, the things she learned from Chip Wilson on being a better leader and human, what she wants her daughters to know about her, and much more. Please enjoy this conversation with the candid, savvy, courageous, and wise Andrea Mestrovic. Andrea Mestrovic. Hi. Hi. Welcome to The Craft. Oh, thank you. So thrilled to be here and chat with you. Yes, yes. I feel like I've been seeing you over the last couple of months than I have in in many years. I feel like we reconnected when you were doing an event for a major client of yours Mm -hmm. a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. And here we are in studio. Yeah. And this is twice in one week. I know. I know. It's been a good week for us. (laughs) It has. How are you feeling? Well, uh, to the listeners, um, Andrea and... um, Tommy Cole came in to do a sound therapy session, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's that's why I saw her earlier this week. How are you feeling? Still it, good vibrations? It was such an amazing experience. Mm. So definitely a believer <laughs> in sound therapy. Yeah, so, oh, I yeah. Love it. Thank you for that. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm always happy to spread to spread sound. Um, but uh, I would love to go way back in time, way back into your history. You were born in Dubrovnik, mm-hmm. Croatia. Mm-hmm. And you also lived in Bosnia, Serbia, Macedonia, but mostly grew up in Sarajevo until 1994. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, if you closed your eyes and you heard the sounds of your childhood, smelled the smells, and were surrounded by the people, how would you describe childhood? Mm -hmm. My childhood was very different in Dubrovnik than Sarajevo. So when I think back... Um, to, you know, the little Andrea. I like to go back to Dubrovnik because that's where I kind of, you know, remember the scent of freesia and I remember fresh figs and I remember the salty water and the beaches and the, you know, incredible environment that I grew up in. And then from there, I moved to Sarajevo, which was a little more industrial, a little bit more of a bigger city um, and and quite a different vibe. Um, And that's also where I experienced the war um, so I sort of go back to Dubrovnik when I, when I think about the little me, um, because it's more positive and more, um, dreamy than, than going back to Sarajevo. But, but that's how I would describe it. Freja and figs and salty water and sun and friendly people and healthy food and, um, you know, arts and culture and friends. Mm, and crystal clear water, <laughs> beautiful water. I mean, yeah. it's they. I think I think a lot of people refer to Dubrovnik as the jewel of the Balkans. So mm. I always sort of bring that up and PR the place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's such a lovely description too. I'm like, I want to go to the jewel of yeah. the Balkans. It's it's a really stunning place. It's changed a lot over the years, but it's um it, it's really a special place to go see if you haven't. Mm. Tell me about the people. Um. People are very warm and friendly, um, sort of um, accustomed to, to foreigners. It's a very touristy place. Therefore, we're seeing people from all over the world come through. 
um, very proud people, um, very passionate. Um, yeah, that's warmth, passion. Family is very important mm. um, back where I'm from. So there's there's that sense of connection um, that sometimes I feel like I lack in some other parts of the world when mm. I travel. Um, but, but home is warm. Mm. I like that a lot. And speaking of family, tell me about your parents. Tell me about your father. Tell me about your mother. Yeah. I know your dad was a soccer coach. Yeah. Fairly well known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad, my dad's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> but we all say that about our dads. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my dad was a coach, a soccer coach back home and, and quite well known and, and had done very well for himself. So if you can imagine for him moving to Canada, where soccer was not really popular until relatively recently, it was it was quite a change for him. Um, but yes, he is, um, you know, very athletic, um, very much a team guy. Um, my mom, my mom is is inspiring. My mom was always working hard. Um, she was actually in marketing. My mom as well, which is funny that I ended up in marketing too, um, but very sort of strong-willed, um, you know, it, it, probably the head of the family. She's always sort of telling everyone what to do, and to this day, she tells me what to do, which we don't always align on things, but I'm <laughs> afraid to say I don't agree, you know. Um, so she's a powerful player, and my dad is more sort of, um, um, has a softer approach, um, has a kinder approach than my mom. She's quite direct. Um, so it's sort of like that dynamic works for that for them. And I think I sort of picked up on on both of their um, chemistry and their, um, you know, expressiveness. Um, so I think I'm a, definitely a combination of, of the two of them. Hmm. Yeah. And what were you like as a child and a teen? Um, as a child, I was stubborn. Um, I was confident um, I had a lot of friends, so I, I would say that I was kind and inclusive, um, but definitely stubborn. That's what I hear often from my parents. I'm still a little bit stubborn, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and then as a teen, I mean, as a teen, I, I sort of had gone through a bit of an unusual circumstance um, in that, you know, I, I've lived through this war, um, which was quite an experience to go through. Um, and then because of that experience, I moved around quite a bit um, and then finally landed in Canada and made this um, our new home, which which is such a different place than where I come from. Um, and I often say, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, this is, this is definitely home. I've been here for a very long time. I'm raising my children here. Um, but, you know, when I go back, uh, when I go back to Europe, even it's, it, it it feels um, like I also belong there. So I belong here. I belong there. I belong nowhere, really. I'm in no man's land at the end of the day. I feel like there, there's parts of things, there, there's parts of Europe and parts of um, my country that I miss. And then there's um, so many things that I can't really relate to anymore when I'm there. So it's, it's, it's sort of unique. So as a teenager, I had to adapt and change. I had to learn a new language. Um, so I would say that I was slightly standoffish as a teenager, particularly in this new country and the new city. Um, but that also changed over time, of course. I, I think like at, at my core, um, I'm very social and I like being surrounded by people. 
I like learning about people. Um, and yeah, that's probably why I've decided at the end of the day to be in marketing because I like learning about people and what drives them and, and what matters to them mm. to circle it all the way back to today, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you and I were were speaking yesterday and you had mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm a child of war and you've experienced things that people who are born here and raised here in Canada wouldn't understand. And I'd love to explore when you reflect back on that, um, what you witnessed your parents and your people um, going through and also how you internalized that at mm -hmm. a young age. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting um, how, at least how this war happened, um, no one expected it. So we were completely unprepared. No one expected that, that this could happen to us, to our little country, um, where we had such a melting pot of cultures and people. So it was really, there was a sense of, um, this will go away in a few days. This can't be, we'll just stay and it will be fine. And then a couple months went by and then you had no more ways to leave and you were sort of stuck in this in this full-blown um, war that is obviously not only foreign but, but scary. Um, you're unprepared. There's no water. There's no food. You know, people are changing because in, in, these, in these times of crisis, uh, people panic. Um, you know, windows are shattered. It's just, it, it's just, um, you know, not anything that you could ever really prepare for. But even if you, if you think about, I don't know, finances and that kind of thing, like we lost everything that we owned and had because we were completely unprepared and didn't um, plan for a disaster like this. So um, an experience like this sort of a, a, as a child, I mean, I, I remember what my parents, um, how they acted, how they behaved, what they've done, and I mean, sacrifice, and I can only, I can't actually even imagine what they were going through um, now that I have kids. If, if, if I try to sort of replay that, I, I can't even imagine what type of fear um, these people had and, and had to go through. And, and I mean, the, the, the um, ability to, to find a way to get your child safe, to be applauded, you know, in, um, in, a, in a time, in a place where that was almost impossible. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, not that I didn't respect my parents before the war, but I mean, knowing what they've gone through, it, it just like opens your heart and mind to a completely new um, interpretation of what of what these people have gone through and what they're capable of. And for me as a child, you know, beyond seeing some horrible things, which you can't unsee no matter how many years pass by, um, it almost, um, it, it, it made me stronger, obviously, um, but it also makes you adaptable. You, you just learn how to shift and change um, and how to just um, continue on in, um, and, and, and in some ways plan. Like as a kid, I was a big planner. You know, I, I think the fact subconsciously, the fact that we were so unprepared and so surprised by all this, I now to this day, I live a life of sort of preparedness. Like I always have a plan A, B, C. Um, 
at least I think I do, you know, you can never really be prepared for everything. But but I, I, I feel like I'm prepared, but I'm also, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm also, I'm also okay with change, you know, and I think, I think as a, as a, as a kid, that's really difficult. Change is hard. And I think living through what I've lived through and living in all these different environments and cities and having to learn new languages and fit in, um, you know, teaches you that change is okay. And this is a, a, you know, an opportunity for growth and learnings and making new friends. And that's really what I did along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, even at times when I was, um, you know, somewhat of an introvert and that was a very short phase where I was, you know, not sure how to proceed, um, in certain circles and with certain groups of people. So I was, I kept to myself for a, a, a short phase, particularly when we moved here to Vancouver. But even in those times, I, I was, you know, I was seeking um, companionship in my own way and finding ways to, you know, entertain myself and um, meet even adults through my parents that, that would be of interest to me, whose stories mattered, you know. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the biggest the biggest takeaway because I get asked about this a lot and I don't shy away from it. You know, I'm a child of war. I think it's made me stronger. I've gone through some terrible things and some great things like we all have. My terrible things might include, um, you know, um, things that I hope none of us go through. But I think those things have made me um, have made me OK with change mm. and have made me more adaptable. And I think that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I'm just reflecting on uh, what you were saying on, you know, how you you look back and you can't even imagine what your parents were going through. And there was a kind of respect in mm -hmm. as you get older. Mm -hmm. And I really resonate with that because recently, maybe about a month ago, I finally asked my mom, what was it like for you to immigrate at 21 years old from your country with a 10-month-old baby daughter to California? And wow, you know, the things that she told me. And I have so much love and respect for that. She was a child, like she was young. Um, and she came over, didn't, sort of barely spoke the language um, and experienced racism. And there was a lot of things that I didn't realize younger that she went through um, to make sure that things were better for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow, even just being 21 and having a 10 month old baby, even just that, you know, uh, is, wow, I can only imagine. And then all the other layers, mm -hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible how strong we can be, um, you know, and, 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 I, and I think, I'm, you know, it's not that some are stronger than others. I, I feel like it's circumstantial, but it's just incredible what you're capable of, particularly if you're fighting for another life. Mm-hmm. And if you need to survive, mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. the things that, that you would do and and those kind of resilient, that resiliency and strength that you instill in your children, even in the new world there, mm -hmm. they're in. It's incredible. I, I also I also sort of applaud my parents in that they came here and then went back to school because their degrees here didn't matter. So we they had to start from from scratch again and and. And I mean, and my, and they both went in, into finance and accounting. And my dad was the valedictorian of his class. This immigrant who moved here is amazing. Mm -hmm. It was a BCIT, and he was the one that spoke. 
at the end. I mean, you know, it's just it's just that when I think about all of that, I'm like, wow, these these humans are incredible. Yeah. Yeah. What did they teach you, you know, individually, your mom and dad? What's the greatest gift they they've given you in terms of a life skill? Mm-hmm. I think I grew up um, in a very in a in a family unit where honesty was really important. Um even at a young age, like I'm, I'm, my mom's my best friend. I mean, I, I'm scared of her, but she's also my best friend. Um, and we have this sort of best friend type of relationship. And honesty was key to to building that and to having that available to us. Um, so no matter what happened, no matter what I did or didn't do, it was important that I tell the truth. And that's that's key, I think, you know, in in building any relationship, whether it's with your child or with your mom or dad or client or friend. um, I think being transparent is key. And sometimes um, I I get accused of being too direct, you know, and it's and it's like, sure, I can work on that. I can work on a softer approach, but I just don't know how to not be transparent. I, I, you know, it's pretty, I'm a terrible liar. Um, so it's pretty obvious when I am not telling the truth. So I avoid doing that because I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think, honesty and transparency is probably one of the key values that I was taught um, since a very young age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do have a question about transparency, um, but related to the things that you do mm-hmm. now. So mm-hmm. I'll put a pin in, mm-hmm. in transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to explore your career because it's mm. it's been a long one and you've <laughs> you've had a lot of different experiences, which I think is incredible. Um, but I love that, you know, you initially wanted to be a dentist, you know, it's want in quotations yeah. because it's often yeah. your parents want this for you. My mom wanted me to be a pediatrician. Of course. And yeah. that's not what I ended up doing. <laughs> Of course, this is what they want us to do. You know, they're in yeah. a new country. They don't really know the system, the culture. They're trying to fit in. And they're like, there are a couple of things that are still consistent here. Yes. And that is being an attorney, being a doctor, or being a dentist. Yeah. It's so stable. Like, yeah. It's stable. It's consistent. We understand it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of what my parents, those were my options. You know, and I, and I say that, I mean, my parents are definitely, my parents are not strict. You know, so it's a very much they're my best friends, but but their opinion really matters. And their opinion was such that there are these three uh, professions that I should explore. And I, for whatever reason, decided the dentistry would be the one. Um, and then and yeah, to, you know, to go on that, we um, I got a degree in biochem um, and then and I got a certificate in liberal arts. And then I realized in my last year that, like, I really didn't want to be a dentist. And I sort of broke the news to my parents and said, well, why don't I, I'm going to do something in addition and then just, you know, then I have these two degrees. It's no big deal. And then I did a degree in communications, um, which was an applied science. And that's, that seemed to matter to my parents, that it was a science degree, Mm. which was odd. I think they were still hoping that I'm going to go that route. And then... And then I didn't. <laughs> and I can't really tell you that my degree in biochem was terribly helpful to me in my life, but I have it. So I know some molecular biology and such. <laughs> um, I guess it helps when I deal with clients who are in pharmaceutical or 
a little bit. But anyways, very, very sort of like different beginning to where I am now. Mm. And did you feel that communications was something that was natural in you and so you were drawn to it? You know, I felt I, I was very happy that I had this certificate in liberal arts because I felt like that was that allowed me to explore and take some courses that I wouldn't have taken at all for my degree in biochem. And then when I looked for um, what else I could add on to that, communications made sense. I can't, I can't really sit here and tell you that, wow, I was really drawn to comms and this is I knew I wanted to be in PR. Not really. It seemed like um, it seemed like a good place for me to explore. Um, there was definitely policy and 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 you know media policy and such that I was curious about learning. Um, so I, I it wasn't an immediate and instant like wow this is going to be the thing. Um, you know I contemplated that or maybe business um, and it seemed like this was a better fit for me at that time. And um, in retrospect, it was probably the right decision. Um, because I feel like comms prepared me for, um, lots of different things. And if I had just taken, if I had just, um, I don't know, I, I, I feel like it was probably a better choice than marketing. I Mm. don't know. Mm -hmm. And then you ended up in publishing for a little while. Yes. And see that to me was a clear, uh, connection to what I was doing. I was like, okay, I have a degree in communications and now I will go and work and I'll work in journalism in publishing. And of course, that sounds way better than what I was actually doing. I was an account rep and I was selling ad space, but I was doing it with um, a magazine that I think was a pioneer in um, conscious consumerism and green living. Um, so it was a very, this was back in 2004. So um, you before know, it was whole, even a thing, before it was really a thing, yeah. you know, so trying to sell clients on the importance of being a part of this community and making changes in their businesses. Um, and also trying to get to know and target those that are already taking those steps. So it was um, it was a an incredibly important experience for me to have because I think everyone should have some sales experience. I, I think when you and I chatted uh, the other day, we talked about that. It's important to know how to sell your ideas, how to you know um, get ahead by by being um, believable in what you're saying um, and and finding a way to to read your audience and mm-hmm. present so that it will resonate. And I think that first job really taught me that. And then I got to work alongside um, an incredible publisher and editor team um, who I still keep in touch with. But uh, yeah, I was I was there for I would probably about a year and a half or two years, which is not bad for that first job. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we were talking the other day and when you said understanding sales is the basis of good marketing, I was like, oh yeah, you know, because I feel like, you know, I ended up in marketing as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, often people are like, no, it's marketing that leads to, to sales. But when you said that, I thought, oh yeah, you know, they're hand in hand. They, they go hand in hand, but you had such a great point that you do, you do need to know how to sell the idea first before anything. Yeah, it's honestly, it's sort of like I, I'm going through this now with my kids, like everything is a negotiation, which I don't think is unique to me and my kids. But I, you know, I'm sort of like recognizing that they're finding ways to sell me on what they need, you know, and they're learning how to do this better, too. Like even um, my older one would like to walk to school by herself, which is literally right across the street. She's in grade four. 
this is not necessary because we take them to school every day, but she would like this. And then she's, you know, been working at it for a while now and giving me all these reasons why she should and really selling me on it. And and, and even at such a young age, you know, if you're better at selling it, you're going to probably get your way. So anyhow, I, I think it's an important it's an important skill and, and probably a good kind of first thing to learn no matter where you end up. Did she sell it to you? She sold it. She walked to school today. Actually, no, she walked to school yesterday by herself. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Look at yeah. her go. I mean, I was right there behind her with my younger one, but, um, but you know, she was quite, she was impressed that she won this and she got this. and Just a chip off the old block. <sighs> what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> so around this time, you also started a PR side hustle as well. Yes. well. Yeah. And <laughs> my God. Remember that time when you were 24 and you thought you, you thought were just like... I, so smart. Yeah, I just know I seem to just be smarter than everyone I meet. Like, what? But yes, I did. I, it was sort of accidental that I started it. But um, I had a family member who passed away from breast cancer. And I, um, I think I was... This was just at the beginning. So I was still with Shared Vision magazine. And I wanted to do, I wanted to give back in some way. And the only, the only way I knew how was to try to put on an event. Um, so a charity event. And then I loved fashion and art. So I wanted to find a way to include that in my event. And, um, and I did, I, I put on this event at Opus Hotel and they graciously um, gave me the space for free to use. And then I got these seven local designers, some of which are still around actually, um, to participate. So I did a fashion show and we had a live auction and a silent auction. And I had Fashion Magazine as my sponsor and I had DBB Canada do my um, collaterals through, through a friend. So it was, it was this actually quite an amazing event, to be honest. It's a big um, thing. That was covered. And, you know, it, it was like my first sort of um, little bit of exposure. Um, and I really liked it. <laughs> Um, and then we and 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 I raised fifteen thousand dollars for breast cancer back then uh, for the BC Cancer Foundation. So that was really I was quite proud of it. Um, and then I think as a result of that event, I and the and the people I got to meet, uh, like Stephanie Darcy from the Cross, which of course is still a big uh, and important store here in Yaletown. Um, I, I got to meet these incredible people who were inquiring whether I, you know, write press releases, whether I do any PR, and I would just say, yes, I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. And that's sort of how I started. I, I just I just had a few local, smaller accounts. Um, the company was small. Um, I then um, onboarded a partner and, and landed some other things, but it, it went on for a couple of years, and we were servicing clients, and I was doing that just on the side. Until I realized, well, there was a couple of things that occurred. One was the recession in 2009 or whatever, whenever that happened, eight, nine. And then I had to really like realign my, my focus. And then, um, and then the other thing was I, as I got older, I, I realized more and more how little I know, to be honest. And, and I mean, we're constantly learning and changing, of course, but when you're 24 and think you're on top of the world and you know everything, and then you're 26 and you're like, hmm, I guess I don't know if I handled that as well as I could have. You sort of start thinking about, okay, I really have to, if I ever want to do that again on a bigger scale, I'm really going to have to learn a lot and, and work hard um, for others and with others before I can attempt that again. So that was the learning there. Mm. But it was 
another kind of incredible thing to go through because guess who did that website? I did. Guess who did my business cards? I did. Yeah. You know, I had to learn all of that. And you had clients in Europe. And I had clients <laughs> in Europe and I had um, a presence in Europe. And it, it was just, I mean, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And I would never, I, I don't consider it at all to be a failure. I thought it was an important part of my life. Um, and I thought that it was a great learning and opportunity. And I met so many people because of it and through it. Mm. Um, and I think it like prepared me for what was next, you know. Isn't that interesting how our our relationship with failure evolves as we grow up? You know, in your 20s, you're like, oh, oh no, like I really failed. But then as you get older, you start to see it as a lesson. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I find that, yeah, as an older person now, I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I'm not as hard on myself if something doesn't go yeah. the way I imagine it. Yeah, yeah, no. Sort of pick yourself up. And you're absolutely right. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm always, I have very high standards for myself and I am um, very critical of myself and, you know, things I can I could do so much better I can do these why didn't I do this or you know there, there's always this like self-analysis that an assessment that takes place and I'm, I'm just not that hard on others but I am so hard on myself and even in our session when we were doing our um, sound session we were at one point you talked about you know think back when you were a child and give your get, hug yourself and like give yourself some love and I was thinking to myself wow that's very that's very powerful I, I don't do that I don't do that enough and um and I should mm -hmm. you know even reflecting back to when I was a kid and everything was go go I'm gonna get this I'm gonna do this I'm a planner I'm gonna check all these things off um, well, good job, Andrea. You checked some of those things off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a friend of mine once said, you need to just celebrate the wins, like big or small. And I was like, yes, yes, Eric, you are right. And again, yeah, it wasn't something that I was doing because when you're in the, in the midst of just doing, um, you don't really come up that 50,000 feet to look at everything yeah. and say, oh, wow, you know, you, you've done okay. Yeah. Yeah, we don't do that enough. I yeah, agree. It's nice I to do agree. that every once mm -hmm. in a while. Mm -hmm. um, so continuing on with the, your career path, I want to skip forward to you were the director of marketing for the Kanki Group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was hospitality, restaurants. The question that I have here was you ended up being at the negotiating, uh, negotiating table when they sold to the keg. Mm -hmm. And so the keg group. And I wanted to ask you, what's the one thing that you've learned about successful negotiating um, from the time you were at that, that table? Mm -hmm. The most important thing that I got from that experience was knowing and being very clear what it is that you need to get from that conversation. Um, I guess like in short, the, the most important thing that I have learned is that um, you know what you want and you really don't negotiate. Mm. And I often say that, I often say that I'm a terrible negotiator because I just don't do it. I, I mean, it's like, this is what I have. This is what I have prepared. I have thought this through. I have data to back it up. And this is where I'm at. And if this is not the right thing for you, then that's okay. Um, and that's really my way of negotiating. And I feel like when I have been a part of those conversations, that's when people have been the most successful. 
Um, so it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you can't have a conversation and understanding, but it just means that having a very realistic view on what your end result should be is very important. So even when I'm, you know, even today, um, I'm I'm going through some valuations of companies and it's just important to be realistic. I mean, to be optimistic, but realistic as well and know and ground yourself in that, in that realness. Um, That really helps when you are trying to get something from someone, knowing what it is that you have aligned on for yourself this is what I, this is what's realistic and this is what I think I need. Um, and then, and then moving very little from there really is sort of, uh, the, the problem is that often people start, um, quite a bit higher maybe than, or, or they want more than really what they should be getting. And I think if you do your research and you prepare it and you are set up, you set yourself up for success. Um, if, if you have realistic expectations, mm. um, which come from, I think, knowledge and data and, and work that you do before you sit down to negotiate. Right. right, that makes sense. So yeah, I often say I'm terrible at it, but I'm actually not. I just like generally get what I need and want if if I am being true to myself and if I'm being realistic as to what that is. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's that's sort mm. of the, that's how I operate. Mm. And I've learned that from, from that process and others. I've, I've been very fortunate throughout my career to, to most often I worked with the owners or the CEOs, which is unusual in marketing. Um, you know, you, you usually have a department and you have layers and layers, but I've, I've more often than not reported directly to the CEOs and founders. And what that allows you to, to do and be is present in a lot of these conversations that usually marketing is not a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a consistent um, thread and a consistent um, situation that I've seen that works. Mm. Well, and I guess it just goes back to your value of just you're you're truthful. You're a truthful yes. person. Yeah. You're honest. Transparency. You know, it's okay to to you know, um, I, I don't want to say change the narrative because that's not that's not what I that's not what I do. But it's okay to um, it's important to understand your audience and then. Um, speak and communicate in a way that will best resonate but what you're saying is consistent Mm. it's not you're not you're shaping the message you're not changing it uh you know to an angle that fits Mm. um so I don't know if that makes sense but no it does okay yeah yeah no it absolutely does um and so then you ended up at Oak Bay Marine Group and that really helped you uh, helped you um learn how to work with different brands because there was a diversity of a portfolio yeah. there, no? Yeah, they're they're sort of like, um, I don't know that, that they're that well known actually, but they I think their properties are, but as a group they're not. Um, but it's a holding company for, um, you know, they own a whole bunch of marinas, they own um, a few different resorts on Vancouver Island, they own Ripley's or not in Canada. So there's, there's this sort of like hospitality, um, uh, boating uh, marinas, they, were, they even had a few uh, projects that they were developing. Um, so there's there there was a it was a very eclectic portfolio, let's say, and and I came in at a at a pretty sort of senior role as a VP of marketing. Um, was probably younger than most there, to be honest, um, at that time, and and it was a great opportunity to to learn um, how all of these very different businesses connect and they're managed by one executive team. 
Um, so in that, from that perspective, it was like writing, you know, 24 different marketing plans <laughs> for the year and having very different budgets for all of those. And then also just, just traveling and, and sort of getting to know the teams that managed all of those projects, um, was incredible, you know, going on a fishing trip, um, up North and, and, and being, you know, never really done that before. And, and having that experience was amazing and learning how those, how those lodges operate. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of ops that I, that I picked up, um, mm. which I think prepared me for, again, whatever was next, how do I manage a team? How do I operate a business? Um, how do I sort of, um, continue to be adaptable in, in a, in an ever-changing landscape of, you know, um, um, press and media and marketing in general so Mm -hmm. and you got to throw this in alongside is for eight years you were also writing internationally and locally so yeah yeah, and mainly in the fashion realm but yeah you know it really allowed you to travel a lot yeah that was that was kind of the um the reason why I did it I guess (laughs) I mean, I, I, I love fashion. I always sort of loved fashion as a, as a kid. I was, you know, designing hats and, and doing all these illustrations of dresses and things. So I loved fashion, and, and, but I loved uh, my home. I loved Vancouver. Um, and I really, I guess, I guess maybe because we moved around so much when I was little, I, I felt um, a move would be very disruptive and I never really wanted to move. And even for my career um, in marketing, it would have probably helped if I had uh, moved to New York or even Toronto or London for at least a while. But I never really wanted to move. And and one of the reasons I think is because we moved around a lot previously. And then the other reason, which is equally as important, if not more important, is that I have a sister who's quite a bit younger than me. Um, um, she's actually 21 now and, and I wouldn't, I didn't want to leave her. I was waiting for her for, there's 21 years between us. And I, when, when I found out that my mom was expecting, I was like, whoa, finally I get to have a sibling. Thank you very much. And my parents were like, what? Are you sure? Are you excited? (laughs) This is a bit of a surprise. Um, anyways, make a long story short, I didn't want to leave Vancouver because of my sister, because of uh, my previous experiences. So, um, but I loved fashion and there wasn't a lot of it in Vancouver or Canada, really. So um, I sort of found my own way in and and started doing some writing and and through very um, interesting connections, I got in front of Olivia Palermo um, and she was about to launch her new blog, which was very much um, fashion editorial on new products and things she loves and, and, and reviews of fashion shows. And I started as a contributor and then I grew that role as a side role and became the editor, international editor. And then, and then came the travel where I got to, you know, experience all these fashion weeks in London and Milan and Paris and you know, felt really important sitting in that front row, <laughs> taking my photos. Um, but she's such a big name, particularly in Europe. Um, so I don't know how that happened for her. I think she did a Club Monaco collab in the UK and then she just, Blew every, yeah, yeah, everyone knew who she was. So um, having that as my sort of, this is why I'm here, this is who I'm with, um, opened up a lot of doors. So I got to experience really cool things mm, during mm-hmm. Fashion Week frenzy. Yes, yes. Um, and I and she actually doesn't have the blog now. She's um, closed down the site because she's focusing on personal projects. 
Um, but it was amazing to be a part of that team. And and yes, it gave me um, it gave me it fulfilled that need for you know fashion, fast paced. Um, which we just don't necessarily have on the West Coast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It it almost feels like in the last couple of years, there's some catching up that Mm -hmm. may be happening, but it must have been so um, fascinating to watch someone build their empire as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's – people don't really – I think people know her just from the show that she did, and and she's a very different person than she was or or is on that show. And I think she was – it was incredible to see what she won and what she built. I mean, it was very successful, the um, the website that she built, both in terms of ad revenue um, as well as the content that she, that she was putting out there. I think she was very smart in the team that she got um, um, and, and, yeah, quite astute. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was really privileged to be a part of it. Yeah, you know, and I followed her too, and and I always thought that I'm like, you know, this this girl is savvy. Mm-hmm. She she knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's incredible. I'm sure she's gonna do great things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Kit and Ace because okay. I know that was a huge <laughs> chapter in in your life, in yeah. your career life, yeah. and where you ended up meeting your business partners for very yes. polite uh, agency. But I would love to just hear about your experience there and 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 really. Um, yeah, what it taught you. Yeah. I mean, it was probably by far my most important experience when it comes to my career path. Um, um, maybe maybe one that I also enjoyed the most, even though it was slightly chaotic and more chaotic than others. But I, um, I met with J.J. Uh, Wilson, who's Chip Wilson's son, um, very early on when they were just starting out. Um, they had a small team. And they were looking for a head of global PR. Um, and I met, and I actually, to this day, I tell him this. Uh, I almost took a job with Aritzia. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in retrospect, I'm really glad that I picked Kit and Ace instead. Um, because I, I mean, he was very charming and, and he had big plans and, and seemed to have uh, a really clear concept in mind. And um, it was a no-brainer that I was going to join that team. Um, what I didn't anticipate is that, and I had a two-year-old at that point, what I didn't anticipate was um, how quickly they were going to scale. Even even in, in initial conversations, you know, they seemed very audacious goals that he was presenting. And I thought, okay, this is very inspiring, but we'll see. But truly, the company did what they said they were going to do, which was, um, you know, in in three simple facts, 62 locations in five international markets in 1.5 years. Um, I guess the fourth one is 150 proprietary fabrics. Um, So it was really a cool concept um, and an incredible story and um, a completely new category of apparel. Uh, because it wasn't athleisure, it was something very different. It was it was clothing that can take you from the gym to the boardroom um, and sort of like make your day easier, um, mm-hmm. you know, e- easier to plan for. So, um, so in that regard, it was really a, a disruptive concept. Um, grew very quickly, needed to grow fast because obviously we were going to see replicas um, the, of the fabric um, and the fabric was quite unique. Um, and yeah, so it was, uh, it was probably like, I always say it's a master's degree in, in business really. And because I was a part of that, um, very small initial team, 
I really got to see it uh, evolve and become what it became at the end. Um, and I was there every step of the way. Um, and I got, you know, and, and I was quite senior. So I was with the family and I was with the executives and um, incredible learnings. I'm so very grateful and feel very privileged to have been a part of that company's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a diff- it's a, it's, it, they're still around. Um, it's just different ownership and it's, um, I think, a few stores. Um, but if you, if, you think from a from a PR and a brand perspective, there isn't really anyone in the world that has done what we did uh, with that brand in terms of impressions, exposure. You know, I mean, of course, we had we had um, the means to do it, and we had institutional knowledge. Um, you know, from the Wilson family, so they've done this before in a much slower, phased out approach with Lululemon, but. Um, this was an incredibly fast paced environment, um, that was, you know, we were, we were able to do what we did because of the, um, because of the institutional knowledge and the resources we had for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do remember, you know, watching, watching all of this and, and thinking that you guys were doing some really interesting things like the collaboration mm-hmm. with the big quiet mm-hmm. was right. incredible. Yeah. Um, sorry, coffee, like all of these little nuances and, and, and little brand elements that mm. I didn't see other brands doing. And I do have a jacket from many years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it was like first or second season and I love it. It was the trench coat that also had the puffy. Oh yeah. So fabric. Good. Oh, mm-hmm. I yeah. get lots of compliments on that yeah. one. So the design was also was also really, really great. Honestly, I think the concept made sense. The product made sense. Um, the team was like, they, they, they were incredible at recruitment. You know, they, they just had the, the most incredible people um, join this journey. There were challenges, of course. Um, you know, there was maybe too many stores at the end. Um, maybe we grew too fast. Um, there's lots of theories as to as to why it had to um, change. Um, but I think, I, I think, and maybe we were ahead of our time at that time, you know, there was, there was, we were doing things that are still current now in terms of collaborations and partnerships and really looking at apparel from a lifestyle perspective and not just a piece of clothing, um, spent a lot of resources on understanding who this is for and exactly what drives them, what moves them and motivates them. So a lot of sort of audience research, um, um, and a lot of time spent on that. But um, again, I can't, I, I can't really even put into words what an incredible experience it was for me in my career um, and how many learnings and how many contacts, you know, like I was in Australia twice a year, in Japan, in the UK very frequently. So, so, so many amazing people I met along the way um, for which I'm so thankful. And I suppose the ability to just have an idea and, and the, the ability for, you know, the executive team to say, sure, give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's nice to be at the table, you mm. know, and, and, and be heard. And then I was, um, because of my relationship with Kit Nace, I was inevitably in close contact with Chip Wilson, whose PR I did for many years. Um, and, and that in itself is, is an incredible experience. Imagine doing PR for Chip. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The man who is unfiltered <laughs> and will say what's on his mind, no mm-hmm. matter what you tell him to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I mean, yeah, we, uh, that sort of led into further projects when we started the agency with Chip, but, um, got to know the family and him quite well. 
got to understand him uh, quite well um, and, and was privileged to sort of pick his brain on many things along the way. Yeah. What has he taught you about, I mean, obviously highly successful and I... I'm curious, you know, as someone that, um, you know, I'm sure he's somewhat of a mentor too. Mm -hmm. What has he taught you about being a better business person, a better leader? And also just what has he taught you about being a human? Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of core values that are well documented um, when you Google chip that really, I mean, it, it sort of seems like it's the basics and everyone should just do this, but but they don't. Um, one of them is, is uh, the respect for time. Um, and, and not just being on time, but being aware of time and other people's time. Um, that was a really big, uh, big differentiator. At, Kit, at Kitneys, you're not late for meetings. You are on time because if you're not, you're disrespecting other people's time. And not to say that that's, I mean, that's a basic, you would think. Like, you, you're not, you don't want to be late for your coffee date with your friend either. Um, but people are late <laughs> and they don't have to be. And, um, and I think, you know, when, when you show up for your team on time, every time or, or three minutes before the beginning of the meeting, people tend to notice and realize, and, and this consistency is quite important in leading a team. So being consistent um, with how you show up is important. There, there's a lot about communications and, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that this sort of like um, direct way in which I communicate uh, chip is aligned on. <laughs> so that uh, it's important to just, again, it goes back to not wasting anyone's time. Like I want to respect you and therefore I'm going to tell you that this is what I was really looking for and not that. Um, and, and you just have to respect that I am telling you what I'm needing and it's not anything to do with, with you. It has to do with what is required here. So I think that's sort of like finding a way to communicate with your team that is um, that eliminates any any sort of like need for uh, prolonged dialogue on topics that are not core um, is important. It's important to have. There's a time and a place for um, you know kind of friendly chatter, but then there's there's a reason why we need to communicate clearly at work. And I think and and managing your team that's really important to to grasp that concept. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of being a human, what what one thing that Chip has taught me is there's no such thing as balance, and and you shouldn't necessarily be searching for a balance. It's really integrating all the things you love into your everyday life. So, you know, for I know for him and the family, when when they travel, the family's there, and like work is they love the work and they love family, and everything is just. Um, everything is a part of this bigger thing and it's not balancing and being, you know, um, how much time do I spend with my kids as opposed to being at work? It's just, it's, it sort of needs to blend, um, in a way that allows you to be present, um, um, in all those sort of like departments of your life, I guess. Um, so, so integrating family into work is important. So I would often sort of bring my kids by and they would understand what I do and, and, and be a part of conversations at the dinner table. You know, um, the, the, the basic things that we take for granted or that we forget about often is, you know, how's your day? Tell me everything about your day. I want to hear about school. So like start from, you know, circle time to recess and tell me everything. And then they would do the same for me. So now I was accountable to tell them about my meetings and who I met. And then, you know, finding a way to, to, to tell kids this, that's going to be entertaining, but talking about our day and then your family because it becomes integrated. 
So I think we're always trying to search for balance. And I, I just don't approach it that way anymore. You know, my, my, I love my work. It's just part of my life. So are my kids. Everything is interconnected in a way where I'm not feeling guilty about trying to balance things. I was just going to say that. I, this approach seems like less pressure on yourself. That's right. That's exactly how I felt about it when I learned it. Mm, that's so fascinating. Oh, I want to apply yeah. that to my life. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really sort of simple theories, I think. But, um, but as a human, I think that's important. Um, mm. And then in terms of being a leader, um, those, those simple things like being respectful of your time, is just it's changed the way in which I operate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before we jump into starting Very Polite Agency. Mm -hmm. I have a question, again, about transparency, so we'll unpin the pin on that. Um, What is, like, the perfect amount of transparency as a brand or as a public figure? Like, what's too much transparency? What's not enough? Is there a sweet spot in that? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think there's a very clear answer to that question, but I will say that it's, it's what I say to all of our clients. Zooming in on your values early on and really, and really sort of defining what you stand for and who you're for and why you exist and what's your best in the world will set you up for success when it comes to storytelling, particularly this external facing story. I feel like once you have that down, and you are uh, concrete on those values. I mean, I, I think brands change their aesthetics. They can change, you know. I mean, things things should change. Change is change is constant and important. But I think what what your key values and your drivers are that shouldn't change for the brand that you start. That should always remain. Um, you could add more to them, but that should you should not neglect your core values. If you don't have that, I feel like then you're just telling a, a you're marketing a story basically. So if you're passionate about your product and your brand, and you are clear on on why you exist, um, and and how you're changing the world in your mind, it's easier to tell your story and be authentic and be transparent. Um, I mean, of course, there's things like. You know, uh, if you're a private company and you don't want to share all your finances or whatever, you know, there, there's lots of things that you're not just going to share externally um, due to a variety of reasons, whether they be legal, whether they be, you know, an infringement of some sort. Um, but but I think like I think sharing um, sharing who you are and, and what you stand for should that should be a part of your story, your narrative um, in, in everything you do. Um so that's sort of how I would maybe respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's too much? We always do. I mean, and, and you you were in PR as well, so you know this. But there's always there's always a crisis audit that you do with your clients, you know, and and you always have these holding statements, and you have all these different scenarios, and and you want to be prepared if things if things start to um, shape up in a negative way, you want to be prepared to address them. Um, so so there's there's there are certain things that company will keep keep on the um you know on the down low um but I don't think um I don't think those are things that are necessarily important or needing to be in the public eye anyways I think what's important is to 
explain yourself as to why you exist and like why why you know out of so many brands should I believe and buy your brand what what are you going to do for me why why are you here and why are you changing are you changing my life or the world in any way that's significant and if so tell me and then and then stay true to that don't just tell me and then you know, change the narrative. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's core. And, and I think all of our, particularly, our, I think our bigger clients and bigger brands that we deal with get that, you know, they, they get that because changing those first impressions is the most expensive exercise of all. So if you have to, if you have to um, do work on, on sort of um, rebranding yourself in the public eye or, or you know, defending your choices, um, the, that work you probably have to do because you didn't stick to your guns and you didn't, um, you didn't define your values early on and, and, and kept up with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very expensive change very to make down, change. down the yeah. road. Yeah, you yeah. don't want to do that. Um, so tell me about Very Polite Agency and, and what you guys stand for. Yeah. So very polite agency. We've we've now been around for six years, I guess. Um, so it's been a bit of time, I guess, that I've been stuck with these guys <laughs> that I started this with. Um, so we, all of us, the the founding partners, um, come from the client side. I've spent some I've spent some time very early on in my career in agencies, but um, but I hadn't really been on the agency side in a long time. And, and the agency side is exciting because you get to work in um, different verticals potentially and, and with very different clients. So you're learning, you're growing, you're adapting, you're changing. Um, you know, one client learns from the other. So it, it's sort of, it's, it's a very dynamic place. It's, it's potentially more dynamic than being on the client side, regardless of what an, how exciting the client might be or how exciting their growth might be. Um, so when we left Kidneys, I, I did a um, I was at the Mark Anthony Group as their VP of Marketing um, for a brief period of time, and then I found out I was pregnant, and then I decided, okay, I have to start something. If I'm going to do this, I have to do it now because I'm about to have a baby, and then things are going to be less stable, and like this is my time. Um, so then I uh, reconnected with my dear colleagues and friends from Kidneys. Um, and we talked about starting an agency, an agency that would be where we could create our own culture, where we could um, pick the clients we want to work with, where we could, you know, uh, work in a different in, in different verticals. We really wanted to be in health and wellness. We wanted to be in hospitality. We wanted to be in fashion. We love fashion, but that was not the only thing that we liked. We liked, you know, uh, Vancouver is, is, is a growing city. We liked what was happening in the real estate market. We just wanted to be a part of that conversation and having an agency of our own uh, would allow us to do that. The other thing that was really quite different is that these partners that came together to form the agency were came from such different sides of the creative realm. It's kind of the best way to describe it. Like it's not very often that you see a photographer and a strategist come together or a creative director and, you know, PR or photographer come together. So it's quite unique that, that I have these these guys who are uh, very different than me and who are incredibly talented and who have decided to join me in starting our agency. Um, so, yeah, that was our sort of reason for starting it. It was, you know, we we liked working together. We're very different. We will fight. Inevitably, mm-hmm. we still do. Um, but we're going to create a space uh, that we enjoy 
and a, and a space where we can offer clients at a very boutique size firm, um, offer clients um, everything and anything to do with marketing and brand. Mm-hmm. So anything from sort of PR to f- video, photo, campaign production, execution, creative strategy, you know, the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's sort of why and how we started it. Yeah, I have a question about brands. You've been building brands for for years, you know, on behalf of a client or, you know, now you've you've got a few of your own that we can mm-hmm. talk about too that are under this umbrella, uh, very polite. Um, but everything and everyone's uh, a brand now. And I'm, I'm wondering in your opinion in this last, you know, 15 plus years you've been in this space, how has the relationship w- between brands and consumers evolved? Mm-hmm. I think more than ever that component of authenticity and transparency is, is more than ever the most important thing. I think because we have um, incredible access to information uh, more than, again, ever before, um, the consumer is highly educated and on alert for any type of marketing speak. Um, so going back to being identifying your values um, and then checking everything off against those and even defining your maybe ideal target audience, like defining a muse for your brand and really creating a storyline around this um, fictional character that you've created that would be like the ideal person that buys it into my theories and my uh, brand. Um, And then sort of ensuring that everything you do aligns with the values of that person um, who is your person. Um, so I think, I think in, in, a, in a way, there's this, there's this concept around the consumer being the co-creator with brands and the consumer having a voice more than ever and not just purchasing power, but, but a voice um, and the brands listening to the voice. Um, that conversation is now easier, um, e- easier to have, e- easier to see, easier to follow. So, uh, yes, I think um, to go back to the question of the relationship between the consumer and the brands, I think transparency and um, less of this kind of fluffy marketing speak, which which has been the thing for years, particularly in some industries, like even in, um, and, and you know a lot about this, but in real estate, um, like that is one industry that for many, many years, at least in Vancouver, felt relatively templated in terms of storytelling and the execution of brands. And there's nothing wrong with that, I guess, in a market where everything's going great. And, and you know, it's a, it's a growing market. There's barely any inventory. Everything you build sells. The, the, over the last few years, I think the conversation has shifted and changed because even when it comes to buying property, when you have options, you sort of gravitate towards one that resonates for for you in some way, whether that's because they're speaking and and targeting families more and telling the the family story and legacy story, whether that's because it's a convenient story. But there needs to be a story that that has an emotional uh, connection to the buyer, even in in, in industries that historically haven't needed to do that. so, so I think that's what's changed. It's this, it's the conversation and the consumer having a voice, uh, a powerful voice, and then brands having the ability and the agility to listen and change mm-hmm. if they need to. Mm. Yeah, I find that um, brands um, are a little bit more irreverent now just because the consumer is a little bit more irreverent. And, you know, they're into 
maybe quirkier, weirder things. Mm -hmm. If you look at the memification of the world, people are really into humor right now in these mm -hmm. really quirky ways. And yeah, it's been really interesting to see how brands respond to to that, the change in, in people and mm -hmm. how they express. But I think it's also still very important to, to um, be always aligned and in line with your values. Mm -hmm. Because if I feel like if humor is not a part of your brand and it's never been and that's what's trending now and, and that's what you try to do, it's not going to come across authentic. So it, it goes back to not just, um, I guess it's your values, but it's also how you define your voice and what, what is your character diamond and what are your drivers and just ensure that you you check those off because it just doesn't come across, it, it comes across almost strange if you are um, trying to be something that you haven't been, mm. unless there's a clear reason why you're going in that direction. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's absolutely fair. Yeah. Um, a question about your partners, Alan yeah. and Dylan. Yes. Uh, what have they brought to your life? You know, I always say I'm so lucky to have all these amazing men in my life. <laughs> you know, I've got my husband, I've got my partners. Um, but I, my my partners in particular, um, they are, we're, again, we're very different. Um, they always say that they're the creatives and, and I'm, you know, admin, I'm over here doing legal, you know, booking things. And, and, and so that's fine. I don't have to be the creative, I guess. Um, but they are, um, they sort of ground me and they, and they keep me centered to be frank. Like they, they keep me from going off and, and, um, you know, doing basically refocusing me. I think, I think that's, that's what they do for me. And for me personally, but then on the other hand, they're so inspiring, um, in the work that they do. I've learned so much from both of them. Um, so I'm again, so privileged that I've managed to surround myself with such incredible humans and such talented people and not just them, but our team, but they're just, you know, quite important. I, I don't think I could really live and work without these guys anymore. That's it. Mm. We're kind of like stuck now, I guess. <laughs> Your family. And, and we've started off, yeah. And we start, started off as, as four partners. So we had JJ as a partner as well, um, who obviously has uh, this institutional knowledge on, on business and retail and growth and, and particularly fabrications. And so it was great to have him be a part of the journey for a couple of years. Of course, he has many other things on the go. Um, so we've parted ways um, company-wise. Uh, we're obviously still very great friends. Um, but yeah, it was a, a, a great mix of, of, you know, people that were very different, but also somehow got along really well and complemented each other's skill sets. Um, so the guys, yeah, continue to be my, um, you know, my, my very important kind of part of day to day. Mm. Yeah. The work husbands. Work husbands. <laughs> yeah. I've got two of those. So I'm pretty lucky. Well, tell me about the brands that you have just launched. And you're one of the first agencies I've heard that are actually doing their own products. So there's Billion Trillion mm -hmm. and Matter mm -hmm. Cosmetics, which yeah. is really exciting. Congrats. Thank you. I mean, it, it is exciting, I guess. It's really exciting. We We've always wanted to do our own brands. So we always wanted to have this sort of like incubator model where we've got clients and we're inspired by what they do and, and we do that work, but we also create our own products. And, and we've, we were very clear from the get-go that the products that we create have to be created because there's a market need or a gap. So it's not just, oh, I love this, so let's just do this. Um, 
so so sort of based in strategy and data, um, if that makes sense. And and that actually is our approach. I, I think um, a lot of creatives um, don't have that approach necessarily. I, I hate to say, but um, our our work starts with with research and with data, and then our creative is always um, informed by that, and that makes it easier to pitch the clients. Anyhow, to go back to our brand, so over over COVID, we had some time. I mean, COVID was obviously a very tough time for all of us. Uh, I'm I'm quite proud, and you already know this. We chatted about this. Um, I'm quite proud of the fact that we, as partners, decided to not lay anyone off during the tough times, to not lower anyone's salaries. Um, we kept onwards and upwards and sort of looked internally to fix the things we never have time to fix during the slower times. Um, we relaunched our website, you know, redid our case studies for um, that are external facing um, and stuff like that and, and spent a lot of time researching in an economy such as this, um, we've sort of all anticipated we would hit a recession after the COVID slight short boom. In an eco- in a downturn economy, you know what are the things that that still do quite well, and what are the things that still make people happy? And there's really three, to be quite frank, and it's it's um, it's beverage, so alcohol. Uh, it's generally cosmetics and skincare because no matter how tough times are, you you could probably go buy a new shade of lipstick and and feel a little bit better. Um, and then sex. <laughs> so those are the kind of three things that are consistently, um, there's always a market demand regardless of what's happening. And we as a company have always wanted to do something in beverage because that's where I come from. I, you know, I was a part of the team that launched a few different wine brands as well as RTDs like White Claw. So I, I really wanted to do something in beverage from the get go. And we, um, a couple of years back, we took our entire team uh, to Japan for um, a I read about trip. this. So yeah. cool. What a great thing to, yeah. that you do. We were, you know, we're a creative studio. We have to find a way to keep our pe- people inspired. So going on these, what we call field trips, uh, was important. We were actually supposed to go to Rome um, in, in March of 2019. So exactly when we, uh, we booked, everything was ready um, and we had to cancel. Mm. Anyhow, so we, we went on a field trip with our team to Japan and obviously got inspired. Japan's an incredible place. We, we were in Tokyo. Um, and when we came back, we wanted to do something with sake. We wanted to do a, a beverage of some sort. Now, it took us a couple of years to come up with uh, the beverage that, that we ended up launching, which is a slightly carbonated sake. Uh, uh, naturally, It's naturally flavored with fruit juice. So it has six grams of sugar, 100 calories a can. It's all natural. It's made here in Delta, BC. Um, so we we came up with this, and we were, have been perfecting it over probably about two years now, um, and finally launched it in September, quite a unique product. No, no such thing really exists in this market. It's called Billion Trillion, um, and it's now sold across BC and Alberta and going to Ontario pretty soon before the end of the year. So that's incredible, really exciting. Yeah. And then the other product that we launched was a passion project of mine. Um, I've, I've been I- into um, clean beauty for a while now. Uh, not to say that everything I use is clean beauty, but I mean, I'd, I'd like to have certain components of my skincare routine be completely clean and natural. And I've been playing around with the idea of doing something with essential oils. 
Um, so we've spent some time researching this and came up with a product that is literally seven ingredients, um, again, made in Vancouver. Um, and it, a, we did two, uh, face oils and two body oils. Um, and yeah, that's another, that's another company we launched, uh, I guess now it's been about three months or so. Yeah. And it's sold, um, it's sold at turf. It's sold at a couple of small shops in Vancouver, as well as in Toronto. It's sold on our website. It's called matter, like you said. Um, and it, it's a really cool brand. Honestly, the product I love, um, I was very much a part of creating the product and testing it. Um, of course, but, um, but it is, it's the, the story behind the brand is pretty cool. Um, yeah. It's I, very cosmic. Yeah. It's, uh, it I was, um, we had our agency theme. We have a theme every year and our theme last year was space that I think everything that we created has a bit of a space tone to it. Um, definitely billion trillion, um, started because we were thinking about how many stars there are in our galaxy and how many, you know, genomes are in your gut and Koji is good for your gut. So, so we you know, found a way to connect all these things. Um, but Matter, we wanted to create a brand that was very futuristic, that, that you know, comes from a different planet. And we made up a planet called Ma. And, um, you know, the, the product comes from this planet. But the, the most important, the key takeaway from a brand story perspective is that it's, it's product that's from a different planet and it's product that's from the future, but it's made with elements from Earth and it's, it's good for earth. Like it's, it's, you know, it's a clean, um, it's natural. It is uh, a product that doesn't damage our planet. Mm. Um, and, and that's kind of the underlying theme, um, with it being clean beauty anyways, but then also the story around, uh, how it's made, where it's made and, and, you know, the future is green. It, it has to be, if there's going to be a future. So, I think our line of products will try to tell that story more. I love it. Well, you said essential oils and you said cosmic in space. I'm like, <laughs> like sign me up. Sign okay. me up. Give me the glow up. I'm like, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just mindful of your time and I just have a few more questions, yeah. more on the, on the personal side of sure. things. Um, what do you miss most about the cultures that you lived in as a child? You know, the biggest thing that I miss here is um, this this social component that seems to be, you know, so prevalent anywhere in Europe. Uh, I feel like on this side of the world, we're very isolated. And I don't know if that's because of because of where and how we live, because of houses as opposed to apartments. Like, you know, I, I don't know if that might be the reason. Um, but we don't have this social component down it seems like it's it seems like it's work here where it's you know it's work to be social whereas in at least back where I'm from it's just it's just natural and normal to pick up your kids after work and then go for a beverage or tea or whatever with a friend before you go for dinner and then weekends are filled with family and friends and here I think it can feel really you can be isolated and it and it and that's the part. I miss I miss like the busy streets, the socializing. And you know what? It's not um I think that particularly in Vancouver, um, we're not as social as as like for instance people are in Toronto. Um, I just came from there and it's, it seems so much more buzzing and, and there's more, more going on. I know it's a bigger city, of course, and there's more people, but it, it seems like that exists there more than it does here. So I think that's one really important thing that I miss is it's that social part. 
But then the second thing um, is arts and culture. And I just, um, that's, that's another really big one. I think that's also why we don't have the social part down is because we don't have places to congregate. We don't have, we don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of uh, infrastructure nor funding for arts and culture here. And, and, you know, if you think about places like, I don't know, France, where, you know, the Louvre is, is funded by the government and like art is really important and it's funded and it's there and it's always there and it's always changing um we don't really have that here and 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 i think that's that's really important for our kids and for new generations to experience that uh, closeness with people and that usually happens around art and culture Mm -hmm. I, I agree. We don't have those gathering spaces as much and mm-hmm. um, people do try to create them, mm-hmm. but it's it's harder to find here. Like you have to search for it here. Whereas, you know, you're talking about Toronto or say in New York, it's just, or Montreal, it just hits you in the face. You're walking down the street and there's just yeah. things around you to mm-hmm. indulge in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I agree yeah. very much with that. Hopefully it's going to grow. I hope Fingers so. I it hope is, so. It feels it's like it is. Me- you know, it's our mentality too. I think we just have to, um, even when I, when, when we do events for clients, it's not, it's not always easy to get everyone to attend, which you attended an event. Of yes, I love it. So thank you. But it's not always easy. It's because we were sort of, you know, oh, you know it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I just, I do hope that that changes. I do feel like it is changing. I feel like there's more, I even feel like there's more, developers who are putting funding towards public art and mm-hmm. those um, vignettes become a place of gathering for people yeah. and and conversation starters so I think I think it's changing I'm seeing it I just hope I see more of it yeah I, I see it too for sure and um, speaking of developers my friend Pablo uh, Zamudia is an, in, uh, is an artist and he partnered up with Oxford Properties and relaunched his 100 Migos art show and like Two, three hundred people showed up. Yeah. That was, was great. incredible. Yeah. How many people showed up? Oh, it was so lively. And you know, Pablo used to have El Cartel, and he was in he was sort of a you know a retail institution for a really long time. And um, those what those were that was so reminiscent of the spirit of the parties that he used to have at El Cartel. Mm-hmm. And it was so nice to see it in bigger form. It was incredible to see. I was actually away. Um, but I saw it, of course, on social, and I was so impressed with how many people showed up. And I thought, wow, this is, I hope this sticks. Yeah. <laughs> I hope people will, will want to gather. I feel like that's, especially post-COVID, you know, people, yeah. people want to meet people and, and see people in real life. Yeah. And, and you know, for soon. me, it was like, oh, you know, yes, I saw people I know, but then there were so many faces I didn't know. And I thought that was great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so your fingers crossed more yes. of this, more of yes. this. Um, do you feel like you have a courageous spirit? Courageous spirit? Yeah, I, I think so. I feel like I am, I'm definitely not risk adverse. I'm definitely always exploring um, this is why I need people who need to, who need to ground me. This is why my partners, um, at work are the ones that kind of pull me down and be like, well, we got, we have to finish this first before you go off to do that. I don't think I, I don't think I have a lot of fear, um, of, you know, losing things or restarting, um, because I've gone through it because we've lost everything, um, and, and moved to a place where we had nothing and had to rebuild. So, that still sticks with me, you know. I'm I'm courageous in that it doesn't it doesn't really matter if I have to rebuild or restart. But I want to seek the opportunity and 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 
do things that will fulfill me and make me happy because you just never know how things might change mm-hmm. and how quickly they can change because they they do they do and they know. can so if you see an opportunity and and the other thing that I've learned from chip is if you see if you come across an idea or you have an idea and you see a sign three times that points that that idea might be the right idea do it take this on do it so kind of I also kind of keep that in mind I'm like hmm, okay I I, want to do this so if I come across something else (laughs) times three (laughs) counting on your fingers yeah (laughs) um yeah so that's kind of how I live my life to be honest Hmm. when you look at all of the things that you've accomplished built ushered into the world um you know, Andrea, who was once a, a child of, of war, who went to build on a beautiful life and, and a career here. Um, what would you like people to know most about you, you in your truest and most raw form? Hmm. That's an excellent question. I think probably I, I'm not an individualist. Um, Community matters to me. I'm very much a connector. I'm, I'm the happiest when I'm amongst people. Um, like even to give you an example, which might help uh, explain myself and what I'm trying to say. During COVID, when we first found out about what was going on in the world and we had sort of a lockdown here, sort of not, and when everyone was rushing to buy things for themselves um, and shelves were bare, you know, I didn't, even though I've gone through a war where, where I've experienced this, same, this, you know, not exact same thing, much worse, but I've experienced these empty shelves and people being selfish and, and, and you know, sort of like grabbing and, and stealing in some cases, um, I just didn't do that. And I feel like, you know, what I did is I is I bought groceries for my neighbor who was across the street, who was older. What I did was ensure that those around me, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a saint. I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say. It's just that my first impetus is not to look out just for myself. It's to remain calm um, and, and, and sort of assess and then figure out how I can be helpful to the community. Um, you know, of course my family is my number one, but that's sort of my approach is not to panic, um, and to remain calm because this too will pass and, and we'll figure this out. We can figure it out easier if people work together more. Um, and I don't know if that really kind of explains or answers your question, but that sense of, of, um, community and, and building things together or repairing or rebuilding things together, uh, is really important to me. Uh, it's it's I'm, I'm not very good just on my own. Um, so individualism is not something I practice, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. No one's <laughs> that beautiful. Makes, yeah. That makes sense. I, I don't mean, know. there's a beauty in community and, and collectivism, mm-hmm. and we're not meant to be alone. alone yeah. Humans are just not. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so. that's sort of what I, I think at my core, I, I'm not... Um, I'm not just this like solo driver. I kind of like being on the bus. Mm. What would you like your daughters to know about you? Um, hmm. I'd like my daughters not to, you know, not just to know about me, but I'm hopeful that they'll that they'll be like this too. And that is unafraid of um, of change and opportunity. Um, I think, you know, what. 
sometimes we're too analytical in, in, in our approach to life, everything from engagements to, you know, business and work. And I think being having a sense of um, being courageous and being unafraid and, and understanding that, yes, things will change, but experiences make you richer. Uh, not being reckless, but but being um, unafraid of, of trying new things. Um, even even new places to live, you know, new friendships. Like in my, um, as I as I age, I'm I'm learning that it's okay to also let new people into your life, make new friends. You know, uh, you don't you don't have to just nurture the friendships that you've had for 20 years. It's it's actually nice to see some new faces and learn from them and their experiences. And, and you can create closeness. You don't need 20 years to build. You, you can create that closeness early or quicker. Um, so I want, yeah, I'd love my daughters to know that I, uh, and, and take this on, and hopefully this can become a part of their DNA as well, that I, uh, you know, I, I'm open to opportunity, opportunities and possibilities. I live in possibility, basically. Mm really beautiful and and then in tandem with that living in choice and and sort of being um, responsible for the choices that you make as well because if you are picking and choosing to um, you know take on a project that's maybe reckless but in your gut you feel like this is the right project then you're gonna have to own it that's a choice you made and you have to live with that choice um, so I think that's also a really important one to being courageous and being um, uh, open to change is also being uh, responsible to the choice that you made. Mm. And my final question that I ask everyone okay. with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Um, I just want the, the most important thing that I can do is, is leave behind kind humans and that's, you know, every night when my kids go, go to bed, I, I ask them the same question every night. Why do I love you so much? What are the three key reasons why I love you so much? And, and one of them is kindness. They're kind. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I'm smart, I'm kind, and I'm inclusive is kind of the, the three that I get back. And that those are the three that are important to me. Um, but kindness, I just, I just, all I can do really, my, it doesn't matter what I do for work legacy wise, I, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, I mean, while I'm here, I'm going to do what I love and try to make the world a better place. Like we all try to do every day, um, try to be good humans, um, and part of the community and show up for your community. But what I can leave behind is two powerful women who are going to be kind. Um, and that's really my, my biggest gift to the world at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. These I two humans that. I created yeah. with my husband. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, Andrea, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this. I have really enjoyed getting to know you better in this last week, really. Yeah. No, thank um, you. a different depth. I'm, I'm just so glad we reconnected. You too. And this is not the end. No, it's I know it's not the end of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Not, of the, not the end of this friendship. Yes, exactly. <laughs> thank you for sharing so much of your story and of yourself. And um, yeah. I resonated with a lot of it, and that feels really nice. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. As always, thank you for being here and for listening. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page for show notes and links on wearethecraft.com. You can find the entire podcast archive here or explore more conversations with past guests on Spotify and Apple. 
Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on these platforms, including YouTube, to get notified when new episodes drop. Any likes and shares on social media are deeply appreciated too. Sound and audio engineering for the show are by Andrew and Jaba Gaspis. All guest portraits and images are by Juno Kim. Appreciate you all and see you again soon.